and look forward to the things that God is going to call us to do in the days to come. Uh, But we want to thank you for that welcome and I look forward to continuing to get to know you all better in the days to come. This morning's story is the story of Elijah as was read to us so well uh, a bit earlier. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to 1 Kings chapter 16. We'll spend time in just 16 through 19 will be uh, where we'll be uh, today in the sermon. But let's pray together as we open God's word, hear a word from him today. Father, this morning I pray that this story would speak not just to those it was written to originally, but that your spirit who continues to give life to this text would do the same this morning. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and we might leave these doors, God, more faithful than we were even when we came in, more sure of this story, and more excited about the ways it will change our lives and those around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Well, I want to give some context to the story of Elijah that I think is very important. And that has to do with the way God instituted the kingship in Israel. The kings of Israel were an important piece of God's uh, history with Israel, but it didn't begin that way. God's story with Israel began without any kings. God was their king. And that all changed in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Because in 1 Samuel 8, all the people are looking around at all the other nations around them, and they realize all of these countries and nations, they, they have kings who are physical leaders among them. So in 1 Samuel 8, they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations, forgetting that God was already their king. And Samuel's a bit offended by all this, but he goes to God and he says, I don't know why they're asking this, but they want a king. You're already our king. And and God says, look, if they want a king, then warn them about this. If you have a king, you can have that. That's your choice. But along with that will come taxes, right? Which all of us can say, maybe we don't want a king. Our our girls are going to be put into his harem and made servants in his kingdom. Our sons are going to go off to battle and many of them are going to lose their lives. This is not exactly the way you want to go. In fact, these kings are going to lead you astray. But do you want a king? And the people with a resounding yes say, yeah, that's exactly what we want. So God gives them a king with all of this as an expectation of what would arise. And as we come to the story here in 1 Kings, we're finding what God told them would happen in 1 Samuel 8 is exactly what's happening. But God didn't just call a king into leadership in the kingdom of Israel. God also set up prophets who would be somewhat of a counterbalance to the king. Because the king's always going to think, I'm the most powerful in the kingdom. And he's going to think he knows exactly what he should do. But when those kings are drawn away to not follow the way of God, he wanted to make sure there were prophets there who heard from God and spoke truth to those, those who were in power. Maybe this is an important thing we ought to think about in our own country, right? <laughs> a prophet that God would call to be aside the president in some way. Uh, and I think about the relationship that these kings and these prophets had. They did not go well. Because here you've got one who thinks he's in charge, and here you've got one who's speaking the very words of God. And sometimes that becomes a tension point when the way of God and the way of these kings parted company. Right now we're going to begin in the, in the story of, of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 16. I want to read to you the description that the scripture gives of King Ahab. This is the king. Again, you had Saul and, and, and Samuel. Samuel is Saul's prophet. You've got David who's king and Nathan is David's prophet. Now Ahab is king and, and Elijah is his prophet. So 1 Kings 16 verse 29. In the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. 
Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. I should hear a gasp there. That's a big deal, right? But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of the kings of Israel before him. So this is the description we get of King Ahab. Not exactly a good guy, right? Tearing down the altars that are presenting sacrifices to Yahweh, and now he's setting up altars to Baal. He did more evil than all the kings before him. So this is Ahab. Well, here's our description of Elijah as he's introduced in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So this is the beginning of the relationship between already people that tend to have animosity towards one another, the king and the prophet. Here's Ahab doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here's Elijah meeting him and for the first time saying, And by the way, you're not going to have any rain in the land. Not off to a good start. Now, this is problematic for a couple of reasons, this whole rain thing. First of all, we need rain to survive. Those of you in Texas, right, we know that rain is important, and we've been through a dry season of sorts. So rain is important, but it's bigger than that, this challenge of of what Elijah is saying to Ahab. What Elijah is saying to Ahab is, you know your God Baal that your wife taught you to follow that's not Yahweh? He's the God of thunder and storms, and yet Yahweh is going to make sure there's no rain that comes on the earth. So this is not just a challenge to the king about the rain that needs to come. This is also a challenge to say the God you've set up, who's supposed to create rain, he's not going to be able to do that because he's not really God. So this is an interesting challenge, an interesting start to the relationship. So you're already seeing the contest being set up here already at the first meeting they have. The conflict is coming. The question is just when it will occur. And chapter 17 is a story I'd encourage you to read this week. There's some very neat stories in there about the widow of Zarephath that I don't have time for this morning. I want to get to chapter 18. But I want you to look this week at that story. There's some great insights in chapter 17. But I want to start reading as we continue on in the relationship between Ahab and, and, and Elijah in 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. So this is three years after that first encounter when Elijah says there's not going to be any rain. Three years later, there's been no rain, and it's time for him to interact with Ahab again. And when he interacts with Ahab, he finds out that Jezebel's been killing off the prophets of Yahweh, the prophets of the Lord. And along with that, we see that there's this guy Obadiah. So there's already tension between the king and the prophet, but the king's palace administrator has been saving and putting away prophets of God and saving them from Jezebel who's trying to kill them. There's a hundred of them that have been saved by this guy Obadiah. So the kingdom is having some trouble in leadership. Well, as the story goes on, we can tell that conflict is about to emerge. 
We're way past the point of reconciliation between Ahab and Elijah. The question is just how the contest will occur. And the rules for that contest show up starting in verse 19, or verse 16. First uh, Kings 18, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I haven't made any trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Again, not a good interaction, right? As soon as Ahab sees Elijah coming, you're that troubler, aren't you? He goes, no, I'm not the troublemaker. You are. You're following false gods. This is headed to a conflict. And we read about that more. The tension grows. And Elijah wants to know uh, what the people of Israel have to think about this. He knows what Ahab thinks. He's a follower of Baal. But what do the people believe? What do the people really believe about who is God in this context? And we read about that in verse 19 and following. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. I think this is interesting, right? These are the people of God. He saved them from all kinds of things in their past. But they come to a moment where they think they don't have to make a decision between Yahweh and the gods that their king is serving. They can just kind of waver between opinions. You know, they're polytheists, right? We can just kind of believe in whoever is is significant at the time. And Elijah says, uh, so who do you believe in? They're quiet in this moment. Now, they haven't exactly said they're following after Baal or not following God, but their silence speaks a lot, doesn't it? And I wonder about in our own time, in our own age, in our own day, with the idolatry that goes on in our our country, in our nation, in our city, I just wonder if, be, if being forced to choose, if we would make a choice where we'd say, you know, really, I, I worship God over here, but, but I've got all this security that's over here. I don't know that I have to choose. And I think this is the problem in our day and age. The greatest danger for some of us isn't that we would choose to betray God and worship after other gods of stone or wood. It would be that we would try to do both of those things at the same time. That we'd worship Yahweh and we'd hold on to all these other things and think that would be okay. But in this story, we find out that you've got to make a choice. Just like Joshua said back in the day, right? For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Here are these people that haven't made a choice. They're silent when it comes time. So Elijah dreams up a contest that's going to decide this once for all. He's going to prove that you can't believe in both of these. This is an either-or kind of decision. Let's keep reading in verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Pay attention to that line. We'll come back to that. But Baal has uh, 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. That one is God. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So if Baal is God, the God of thunderstorms, this ought to work in his corner, right? He's the one who produces thunder and storms and lightning. He can surely set an altar on fire. So you do that, and then I'll do it with Yahweh, and we'll see whose God is God. You won't be able to stay quiet anymore because somebody's going to show up to be the real God. Verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. 
But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Hey, shout louder, he said. Surely he's God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or he's busy. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Well, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So this is one scene that we see is Baal, trying to, the people of Baal trying to do this. And I love how Elijah responds to this, right? He just taunts them through the midst of this, right? He's like, you know, I, it's a funny thing with gods, right? Sometimes they're out late on Friday nights and they don't wake up early Saturday morning. So maybe you ought to wake him up, you know, be louder. Worship with your frantic prophesying. Maybe he'll show up then, and, and, but he doesn't show up, does he? Well, then it comes time for Elijah on the other side. I, I got to say, this takes guts for Elijah to say, we're going to see whose God is God. Because it's not easy for God to, to promise that God's going to show up in a season. How many of us have had times in our lives where we, we would like for God to show up, and sometimes he doesn't, and we're a little bit baffled by that, or we're struggling to know what to say to others who are looking at the situation. That's what Elijah's walking through. Let's keep reading in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come, here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. They did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up all the water around the trench when all the people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There's no more wavering between opinions at this point. There's no more silence. It's clear who God is. Now, I love how living and active scripture is because just this morning, I was reading this in first service and I've been reading this all week. I didn't notice this detail. And I, I, I just, I got caught in first service and said, I'm just noticing something here I hadn't seen before. It's in verse 30. It says, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They, they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Have you ever noticed that detail before? It's like, a, it's like an image, a picture right there. There's not two altars. There's one altar where they have been worshiping. And then there's an altar that's been broken down because no one's been worshiping there. So even in their silence, when they don't say who is God, the, the standing altar proves who they believed God was. Here's this altar that he has to build on his own to do this sacrifice on. And I love scripture because you just never know where you're going to see something that you hadn't seen before. But here's Elijah, and he has to feel on top of the world. right? He, he, he gave an ultimatum. He said, this is how it's going to be. And sure enough, God shows up. It's a great moment. Have any of you been in that moment before where you've prayed to God wanting for something to come true or, or, or for him to do something, and he, he comes through on your behalf? And in that moment, you are filled with faith, aren't you? It's like, man, I, I don't know how I could have ever not believed in God because he showed up in this scene. And then a year later, you're questioning the same act, and you're saying, you know, maybe that was a coincidence. You know, maybe I should have 
Should, should have checked that again because I'm not sure. He, we need to mark these seasons where God does incredible things, don't we? We need to thank him for those things. We need to, maybe it's a prayer journal you need to start to be reminded because sometimes we offer up prayers to God and he answers them. And a year later, we're stuck without faith. We need to hear those stories in this church about the answers that God has, has, has given to prayer so that we can mark those moments and say, God is here, he's active, he's doing something. And sometimes in my own life, I lose faith because I forget to mark those moments and say, I, I will know for the rest of my life that God acts, that he's active, that he's alive, that he's doing something. So this is a great story on this end, right? This is the edited version, the children's story. We, we, we've heard that each week. But the story continues on, and, and I think this is significant because for, for several weeks, uh, next week's going to be the end of this series, by the way, and we're going to move on to uh, a Christmas series coming up. But, but, but this week I want to talk about how for the last few weeks I've been talking about when suffering happens in your life, when bad things happen to you, sometimes we question if God is active in doing anything. But today's a different story. I want to speak to those of you that this series might not have connected with because you're going, my life's real good right now. Everything seems to be going just fine. I don't have a struggle with doubt at all. And I want to tell you, at the end of 1 Kings 18, I think that's where Elijah is. Everything seems to be great. He's at the top of everything. And we think that we lose faith often when bad things happen to us. But this story reminds us that you can lose faith not just in the low moments of your life. You can lose moments at the peak of your career or your success. Because he gets this huge answer in 1 Kings 18. God comes through. And then what happens? Well, let's keep reading in chapter 19. 1 Kings 19, verse 2. Jezebel finds out about this. And she's something to be reckoned with more than Ahab. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Talking about those prophets that have been set out. Now you would think that Elijah would say, hey, you bring at me whatever you want. Do you see the the sacrifice that's still sitting on that altar and this one's burned up? My God's going to protect me. But what does Elijah do? Here is the moment he should have the most amount of faith. And what does he do? He goes on the run. He runs south. He runs south to the tip of Judah which is the edge of Ahab and Jezebel's territory, right? But he doesn't stop there. He leaves his servant there as if to say, I'm done with my post, and he keeps running south to Egypt. And he goes to a mountain called Mount Horeb. Now that might not be significant if you're not paying attention or don't know some of the background, because Mount Horeb is another name for another mountain that showed up in Israel's story, Mount Sinai. So when he's going south, he's headed somewhere for a reason. Because why do you think? Because, well, if God showed up there before to give the Ten Commandments to Moses here, then I know I can count on God to show up again here. So Elijah runs for his life. And I have to wonder if some of us have been at the top of our careers and we thought everything was perfect, and that may be the moment that's waiting to catch us. But I want to read what happens to Elijah when he finds God down near Mount Sinai. It's in in 1 Kings 19, verse 9, the second half. So he's sitting there, he's wanting to die, he's in a cave, and and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? I want you to consider this question, maybe a question God wants to ask you right now. There's several ways to hear this question. One would be to emphasize this. Maybe God's saying, "What, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or maybe that's not the emphasis. Maybe God's trying to say, what are you doing? What are you doing here? There's one that's you. It's like, what are you doing here? I just showed up and you were... You were doing great. Like, you're the prophet of God. Why, what are you doing here? But another is, what are you doing here? What, what, what is it you're doing? But there's a third way that I want us to read it that may be a word to you today. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here at Mount Sinai, Elijah? What are you doing at Horeb? 
You, you just won a battle. You're already gaining ground. God's shown you victory. But now you're on the run and you're showing up in Egypt, which is where I worked in the past, but it's not where I am working right now with Israel. And I find this instructive. I find this story instructive because so often in my life, I, I get to situations where it seems like God does something good and I'm ready to go back and run at the drop of a hat when someone wants something from me that's not what I think God has for me. So some challenge comes up, and I want to run back to where I've seen God before. So if you're sitting in that situation right now, if you're wondering what might be next, maybe you've heard from God in the past, and you're wondering what he's calling you to right now. I want to talk about three principles out of this story of Elijah that I want you to take with you this, this week. Maybe one of these will connect more than another, but I want to talk about these. So uh, if you'd like to take notes, there's a notes section on the, the back of the bulletin. Maybe there's something in here that, 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 uh, that God will bless you with. The, these principles, I believe, are counterintuitive. They're not the ways we think about them, but I think they're true, and Elijah's story draws them out. So how do we hear from God when we've stopped hearing from God? Well, the one first way to think about that is let's think here and not there. Let's think here and not there. Just like Elijah, right? He's, he's had this moment of success. God's, God's burned up the sacrifice. He's shown himself to be the true God. And in that moment, you would think he would be close to God and be able to communicate with him. But when trouble comes, what does he do? Well, I can't hear from God here. I must have to go back there because he's spoken there before. And I wonder how many times in our lives that we're, we're in a moment, we're in crisis, and, and instead of listening to God here, we think we have to be somewhere else for God to speak. This happens in Israel's story, right? God tells them, I don't want you to ever go back to Egypt. I don't want you to ever go back to Egypt because that was the place you're in slavery. And, and there's going to be a point in your future where you think Egypt's going to be able to save you, but I don't want you going back there. I want you to trust me. And later in the story, what do they end up doing? They end up looking to Egypt to protect them from Assyria and those from the north who are coming in. It's like we have this thing in our, in our lives where we, we've seen God work here. And then we step into this place and, and we want to run back there to find out what God is calling us to do. But what do we find in this story? I think God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I, I speak here just as often as I speak there. You don't have to go to a temple made by human hands where God, uh, you know, speaks to you. You don't have to go to that moment in your life. I know I'm this way. I, there are moments where I've heard God speak clearly to me. And I want to go back to that retreat site. Or I want to go up on that mountaintop. I want to go back to that place, forgetting that God's with me here, not just back there. And if we're not careful, we, we forget that God is actually active wherever we are, not just in the special places we've heard from him in the past. See, I, I, I think this is natural for us because when you lose your cell phone, for instance, where do you look? You look in the last place that you lost it, right? You go there because maybe your phone would be there. But our God's not like a cell phone, let's be honest, right? You know, he's not an object you put someplace and then you go back to retrieve him when you need him. God is living and active and he's here as much as he's there. And that's the story of what God does through the story of scripture is they used to believe he was just in a temple. They used to believe he was in the holy of holies. But at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, do you remember what happens to the temple? The curtain's torn in two. As if to say, even if you wanted to go back to this place, I've, I've, I've ripped that apart because I'm alive everywhere, not just in these special places where you've seen me in the past. And maybe that's a word for some of us who are trying to go back to a moment where we heard from God in the past. And God's saying, I, I'm, I'm here in your future. I'm here in your present. You don't have to go to that place to hear from me. So we need to think here, not just there. The second thing, way we need to think, we need to think we and not me. Think we and not me. 
When it comes to my life, I, I, I come to these moments where I think God's calling me out to something, and I'll charge out in leadership on something, and I'll find myself thinking I'm alone in that moment. Have you ever been there? Like you do this thing you think God was calling you to do, and you're looking around, and no one's there to follow you, or, or you feel like no one's trying to, to, to follow faith as deeply as you are, and you find yourself, and you think you're alone in this moment. And that's what Elijah thinks in this moment. Let's, let's go back, and let's read 1 Kings 19 and verse 14. This is what he says to God. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, you see what it said there? I am the only one left. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will be put to death, uh, will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. See, he feels real alone in chapter 18 at the end, and Jezebel's after him, and he thinks he's the only one. You heard him say that in chapter 18, you hear him say it in 19. I'm the only one left, God. And God says, um, my count's a little different than yours. Because I count 7,000 who never bowed a knee to Baal. You think you're alone? You got, you got Elisha who's going to follow you. He's been faithful. You got 7,000 others. And I have to wonder, at times in our lives where we step out in faith, we come to this point and we think, I, I'm all alone. It's, it's got to be me or it's going to be no one. And, and God's saying, would you look around you? There's 7,000 who've not bowed their knee. That's what this faith community is all about, is it not? Is that we join together to remember that even though it might seem like we're alone all week long, there are hundreds of us, thousands in the city of Allen and other churches that are trying to be about the same thing of bringing the kingdom of God to earth trying to share this good news with other people. You are not alone, no matter how alone you feel. And I know some of you may be saying, yeah, but Colin, you don't know. I've been in this church for a while. I still don't feel connected. I don't, I don't feel like I've found my place. I, maybe it's another church. And let me just say, I'm sorry for that, those moments you felt like there wasn't a place for you here. Or you felt like you couldn't connect. And it's sometimes hard to connect in a church this size. But I want to challenge you again to, to come talk to me. Come talk to our staff. Come join with others and let us find a connecting point group that you might be able to fit into. Maybe you're in a connecting point group and you're saying, I, that's not doing me any good. I don't feel like anyone's joining me on the journey. We would love to find a place for you. It's going to take you stepping out in some ways, but we want to build a community here that says, we don't just pursue God when it comes to me. We, we pursue God as a we. And we're not the only ones who are here. So I would love to, to talk with you. It's, it's tough coming into a new church, even as the preacher. And many of you, they know who we are. They talk to us. It may be harder for you. And so we want to pursue ways as a church to, to join this journey together, not be alone. There are 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal, and that's true in this city as well. The last way we need to think about this when it comes to hearing God again, let's think small and not big. Think small and not big. So often in my life, I want God to, I have a question for him. I want him to paint it in the sky, right? Show me a cloud that shows exactly where I need to go or, you know, do something that's so bold and so clear. Our problem is not obedience. Our problem is knowing what he wants us to do, right? I think in this moment that Elijah shows up at Mount Sinai, he's expecting something big. You remember the last time they showed up at Sinai? It's funny what we pray sometimes. We've got to be careful about our prayers. You know, we'll pray, God, would you just show up in this place? The last time God did that at Sinai, they said, would you never show up in this place again? 
Don't ever do that to us. Moses, let him talk to you, and he can declare your message. Don't ever do that to us again. So we got to be careful what we pray sometimes. But he goes back to Sinai, and he wants something big. And what does God do? There's this wind that tears through the mountain when God says he's going to see him face to face. Maybe this is it. Remember, maybe this is just like Moses saw it back in the day. But God wasn't in the wind. And then there was this earthquake. I think there was an earthquake in Exodus, wasn't there, on this mountain? The mountain's rumbling, and maybe this is God showing up. He did it here before in this way, and God wasn't in the earthquake. And there was this fire, and and he showed up in a burning bush. Maybe this, I mean, all these stories kind of go back to Moses, don't they? But it's not in the fire. And where is God in the story as you read on? He's found in the small, quiet whisper. I wonder how often we go back to Sinai's in the past. We're waiting for God to give this clear message. If you'll just say it, I'll do it, God. And all the time, he's kind of whispering to us. We're just too busy and, 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 and have too much noise in our lives to hear from him. So we may be looking for a spectacular thing that God would do and say, God, we'll, we'll follow you if you'll show us the spectacular. And all along, God's saying, don't look, don't look big. Look small. You know the way I was called to ministry? I was called to ministry my freshman year at ACU. I thought it might be a track. I was headed to Preston Crest to be a, an intern with Prentice Matter. It was the experience of a lifetime to get to share his wisdom and see how he did ministry. And that summer before I left school, there, were, uh, prof- there was a professor that came and talked to the freshman Bible majors. And he said, what I want you to pay attention to is this. In, in God's calling in your life, it's not going to come through uh, professors here at ACU. It's not going to come through incredible preachers like Prentice or, or others in this movement. It's not going to come through. The, it's going to come, and this is his language, so don't get me in trouble for this, but it's going to come through the little old ladies in the church. I'll tell you what, I listened that summer more carefully to those little old ladies in the church, and my calling came from those women. Because they said, you know, Colin, you've got a gift here. Maybe you should think about this. Or, you know, I appreciate the way you came to the hospital and I think you've got a future. I think God may be calling you to this. See, we, we look for big things. We look, I was looking that summer for Prentice to say, you need to preach. And, and, and he encouraged me in those ways. But I remember more than anything, my calling came from these little whispers in the back of a church building on a Sunday night. That was how God called me. And I have to wonder if there are those callings that we just miss all the time because we're looking for God to do something big. God wants to do big things, but sometimes he has to work through a whisper to get us there. So this morning as we close our time, I want to encourage you this week to think about these things. God, God is not just over there in the past where you've seen him. He's here. And he wants to speak to you here. And Elijah had to learn that by going back and realizing, no, I'm calling you back to Israel. Or, may, or maybe we need to think this week about, uh, we feel alone in this task, but we need to partner with others so we're not alone. That God has 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. There are others that want to join us in this journey. There's an Elisha waiting for you to mentor them, and you want to die at Sinai and just be done with this thing, but Elisha wouldn't be raised up if it wasn't for you seeing the possibility and pouring into their life. Or maybe we're looking big, and we just need to look small again. To get quiet this week and realize God may speak through the, the quiet of a moment. He may speak through people that we're not looking to for that calling. But God has a way of speaking in all of these ways. So I hope this has been an encouragement to you. I hope this week you'll take at least one of these and, and, and take them into your devotional time with God. Or maybe you just need to start that time with God just to listen. It can be hard to hear from God. And I think this story of Elijah, if we don't just end it, 1 Kings 18 can remind us that at the, the, the top of things, we can lose our faith. We can lose our voice. We can, we can forget where and who God is. And this is the way God wants to speak. Amen? Let's pray as we close things out. Close things out. God, we thank you so much for this story. Yes, it's a story about your faithfulness. It's a story about you burning up stuff and 
pyrotechnics and all those kind of things. We tell that story at VBS all the time, and I'm so glad I was raised in a tradition that told me stories like that. But God, we need this story in 1 Kings 19 just as we need 18. To be reminded that when, when things are at their highest, they might just be at their lowest next. To remember, God, that it's not just in miraculous ways you work, it's in quiet whispers. To remind us that even when we feel alone, God, you've got people all around us who are ready to partner with us. They need us as much as we need them. So God, point us to those people this week. And God, remind us again, too, that you're not built in, in, in churches that are built by human hands. You're not contained by those things. You work here at Greenville Oaks, but it's certainly not the only place you work. So God, may we find you scattered throughout our week this week as we go out into our communities, into our jobs, as stay-at-home moms, as all those who are doing their work this week. Father, we love you. We want to hear from you. And we ask that you would speak. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I'll be standing now as I close out with our benediction this morning.